Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Acts 15, chapter 1 to Acts 16, 5. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by mouth that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel and message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have had been able to hear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles, sorry, the sons of Mars, I'm just moving here, the Gentiles, a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again. To the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles, who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. But instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For the ancient times, Moses has had these who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some without authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you, along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth, for it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, 
that ye abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch. And after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He travelled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul went on to Derbe and Lystra, where he was a disciple, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters of Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of them. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Thanks, Kim. Good evening, everybody. Uh, It's good to be here. It's good to gather around the Word tonight and to, to pray together and to worship God together and finally to unpack the Word uh, together this evening. My name's Josh. For those of you that don't know me, uh, it's, again, great to be here to open the Word with you guys tonight and see what God has for us. We recently picked up our series in Acts, Unstoppable, How God Uses the Church uh, to Change the Word. We've kind of, uh, we've broken it up a little bit. Um, We did a bit last year. We've picked it up again this year and we'll, I think, finish it off early next year. But tonight we are spending our time in Acts 15 um, and into the beginning of chapter 16, as Kim has just read for us, uh, where we hear the great debate surrounding the way in which Gentile Christians are to live. These passages seem perhaps to be of minimal significance for us as Christians today, especially in Australia. I don't know about you, but I don't know too many Jews, let alone Jewish Christians. And so the idea of living as a Christian, practicing uh, Jewish law and lifestyle is largely not talked about in the church today. But I do assure you that this passage is of great significance to us and my hope and prayer is that uh, you will see this as we unpack the scriptures together tonight. So we come to chapter 15 and it really is uh, at the centre of Acts. It gives us two perspectives on the formation of of the church so far. Firstly, retrospective, uh, looking at the formation of the church so far, beginning in Jerusalem and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this passage features many of the major players in the story so far. We've got Peter, we've got Paul, we've got Barnabas, we've got James, 
Uh, we've got the apostles and elders in the church at Jerusalem. And of course, uh, the real MVP, if you like, the Holy Spirit, who without uh, none of this incredible work so far would have been done. And secondly, we have a prospective look, looking to the beginning of Paul's missionary journey to Europe and Western Asia Minor and further towards the end of the earth. The additions of Mark and of Silas and of Timothy and others join the narrative as the gospel continues to spread and continues to change the world. So this is where we're heading tonight. Strap in. We're going to pray and then we're going to get into it. Father, thanks so much for your word. Thank you that we can come uh, tonight as uh, your people, as broken people, Lord, to gather around your word. Father, open our eyes and open our hearts to see what you have for us this evening. Uh, Lord, open us to hear your gospel, hear the good news about Jesus, uh, exactly what he's done for us, Lord, and the life that he offers us. I pray as we, as we share in the word tonight, as we unpack your scriptures, Lord, um, speak to each of us. Um, and yeah, help us to continue to grow in Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we find ourselves tonight in Antioch, uh, which is the capital of Syria. We've got a bit of a map on the screen. So down the bottom, it's a bit hard to see, but we're on the right-hand side down the bottom in Palestine, we've got Jerusalem. And then up in the green in Syria, we've got Antioch. That's the capital of Syria on the right-hand side. And the red sort of arrows are outlining Paul's first missionary journey, which he's actually just completed. And now he's uh, made his way back to Antioch, which is where we are tonight. And the next uh, slide, the next map, that's a bit, bit, bit of a closer look um, at where we are for you to follow along. So there seems to, be an, seems to have been an assumption from the previous chapters in Acts uh, that the new Gentile Christians need not conform to Jewish law uh, as Jewish Christians were. This is the first mention surrounding the issue, sparking much cause for debate and a need for resolution to be found. And there's really two reasons for this matter to be raised. Firstly, the Jewish Christians found it hard to believe that Gentiles could be saved without conforming to the Jewish law, as this had been seen as God's will uh, for his chosen covenantal people. And secondly, how were the Jewish Christians to gather around the table with Gentile Christians when there were significant differences in expectations surrounding appropriate food to serve and consume? Under the Jewish law, the Gentiles would be considered ritually unclean just as a people group and therefore forbidding Jewish Christians from table fellowship with them. And then secondly, the food that the Gentile Christians may have served at their table to Jewish Christians could also have been considered unclean. So you might be wondering what's this all got to do with circumcision, as our passage sort of highlighted. Well, the circumcision of, of Jewish boys was a sign of their life as being set apart as one of God's children. It was reflective of that boy and his family's conformity to the whole of Jewish law and was seen as a marker that set God's people apart from the surrounding nations and from the people that had previously inhabited and defiled the land in which they now lived. And so the law of Moses, or the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, was given to the Jews as God's will for his people 
and define the way in which they were to live. The problem we now find is that the salvation uh, that God gave first to the Jews has now been given also to the Gentiles or those outside of the Jewish community. But the Gentiles were not given the law of Moses to live by. So the question uh, that Paul and Barnabas seek to resolve is whether the Gentile Christians need to conform to the Jewish law in order for them to be part of the ever-growing Christian church. So Paul and Barnabas travel to Jerusalem uh, where they will meet with the apostles and elders there to discuss the issue. Along the way to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas shared testimony of the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord had been sorry, the work the Lord had been doing amongst the Gentiles, converting them to Christianity. And upon arriving in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas continue to share with the church of what God has done with them. This is important to note as a prelude to the coming discussion. As it, can be, as, as it can surely be seen to be God's will uh, at play in the work of the salvation of the Gentiles and not an undertaking of Jewish law abidance. The underlying theology is that Christians are justified uh, by faith in Jesus outside of any works of the law, which really is a hallmark of Paul's theology featuring throughout his letters to the Romans and to the Galatians. The former Pharisees in Jerusalem really disputed this, proclaiming that it is in fact necessary uh, for the Gentiles to become Jews in order to then become Christians. So this is, I guess, the, the context we find ourselves in this evening. And so as, as chapter, 11, uh, chapter 15 goes on, the apostles and elders in Jerusalem now gather to discuss the matter with Paul and Barnabas. And after much debate, Peter defends the gospel of grace. He refers to his encounter with Cornelius, which was some years earlier in Acts 10 and 11, which we unpacked a few weeks ago, where he understood clearly that salvation was for both Jews and Gentiles. Furthermore, the determining factor in one's salvation was to be whether the Holy Spirit had come and entered in and cleaned the person's heart. Just as the Jews had been saved by the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, so too had the Gentiles, which is the context from which Paul has now come from down in Antioch. And Peter goes on to say that if one, of, if one is to be circumcised in order to be justified, he must also carry out to perfection the entire law of Moses, a task that no one had been able to achieve. Moreover, if the Jewish Christians have, to be, have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, then they too are under no obligation in relation to their salvation to submit or conform to the Jewish law. Some Jewish Christians had continued to uphold the law even after believing in Jesus and finding salvation in him, and yet others gave away this obligation, preferring to live outside of Jewish law, embracing newfound freedom. So Paul and Barnabas again share testimony about the signs and wonders the Lord had been doing with them and through them, with the Gentiles. This is again to confirm and emphasise that it was in fact God's will that the Galatians be saved by faith alone, apart from the law of Moses. And James responds with affirmation from the prophets 
quoting Amos, that it is indeed that it indeed was part of God's plan for the Gentiles to become part of the church. James was known at this time and, and later throughout uh, some of the literature in the scriptures and other literature as quite a conservative Jewish Christian. We can see this just in this text uh, by his reference to Peter by his Jewish name Simeon. And we can see this too by his knowledge, knowledge of the Jewish Bible. Knowing this, James now uses the phrase people to refer to all of God's people including Gentile Christians. And you might sort of read this and, go and sort of think that doesn't matter or doesn't mean anything. But throughout the Old Testament, God's people, that phrase, God's people, was a strict reference to Jews alone. And now it seems that James is opening that phrase up to refer to all of God's people, Jewish and Gentile Christians alike. And this is significant because of the intelligent conservative Jewish Christian James can welcome the Gentiles into the fold of God, then so too could all of the Jewish Christians. The excerpt from Amos that James quotes unpacks the idea that the Lord will rebuild the tabernacle of David, that is the, the dwelling place of God, as the church, and that will be open to all of the nations of the world. The conclusion that James makes in verse 19 is that there is nothing to suggest or require that Gentile Christians become Jewish in order to join the Christian church. I. Howard Marshall uh, writes in his commentary on Acts, the point would seem to be that God is doing something new in raising up the church. It is an event of the last days and therefore the old rules of the Jewish religion no longer apply. God is making a people out of the nations and, there is, and nothing in the text suggests that, that they are to become Jews in order to become God's people. So there are no entrance conditions to be imposed upon them. The requirements that James uh, does go on to suggest are purposed with keeping uh, Jewish Christians with clear consciences as they fellowship with Gentile Christians under the new covenant of Christ. James asks that Gentile Christians abstain from uh, three things, food offered to idols, uh, indulging in food that have been sacrificed to idols by pagans. Secondly, sexual immorality, engaging in sexual conduct outside of the covenant of marriage that was given by God. And thirdly, eating anything that had been strangled or still retains its blood. In Jewish culture, blood is seen to be where the life of a creature is. Uh, and according to Jewish law, it needs that blood or that life needs to return to the earth and not be consumed. And so the method of slaughtering an animal uh, in Jewish culture required that the blood be drained from the beast before it was butchered, cooked, and then eaten. When Christians sort of read this passage today, this seems like a lot of expectations to be put upon Gentile Christians. But once you really unpack the Jewish law, you begin to see that these small expectations pale in comparison to what was expected under Jewish law. When you compare these small few expectations or, or guidelines, they really are insignificant when compared to the rest of Jewish law that 
um, some of the folk were suggesting Gentile Christians needed to conform to. Further to this, not a lot of meat was actually eaten in, uh, in the times of antiquity, at least not in the fashion that we eat meat today where, you know, at least in my family, in the, in the household I grew up in, the, the meal centred around the meat. And um, that certainly wasn't the way in these earlier times. So James concludes his speech by referring to the Jewish practice of hearing the Torah read aloud in the synagogues on the Sabbath. He makes the point that the Gentiles are free to learn more about Jewish practice by being free to hear the law of Moses read aloud and furthering the fellowship of Jewish and Gentile Christians as they gather together around the scriptures, around the word of God. And so agreement is then reached across the gathering. Even the strict Jewish Christians are to be included in this, that the Gentile Christians need not convert to Judaism in order to become part of the family of God. And this really is good news for us. It's great news for us. It means that we... As Gentile Christians today are not bound by Jewish law and are free to live under the gospel of Jesus. I think it's very easy to kind of read this in the scriptures and feel detached from it. But when we realize that this is actually our story, this is part of our narrative. It's where we fall into uh, the narrative of the gospel. It really is good news for us. And so following on from this agreement, the apostles and elders determined to write a letter to send back with Paul Barnabas, Judas and Silas explaining the outcome of the conversation in Jerusalem. And this letter encourages the Gentile church that God does not require a Jewish conversion from them and gives further instruction and encouragement uh, to keep the believers united and of one heart and of one accord. Again, the guidelines given uh, to the Gentile Christians were for the unity of both Jewish and and Gentile Christians. They were to be an aid in the fellowship amongst the diverse group of believers. And so we read that the church in Antioch was most encouraged by the letter from the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, and it only brought joy to the people. The Gentile Christians were seemingly quite happy to live under these new guidelines in harmony with their Jewish brothers and sisters. And this, sort of verse 35, really concludes the first section of our chunk of scripture for tonight. And perhaps uh, concludes the retrospective aspect uh, of this chapter. And we'll now, uh, in a few moments, move towards the prospective aspect, looking ahead uh, to further mission and growth of the church. But for now, I'd really like to pause for a moment and unpack this first, this first piece, this first Uh, part of the passage. After all of the discussion and debate, first in Antioch and then in Jerusalem with the apostles and elders of the church, the resolution found is that there is nothing required of us to enter the kingdom of God and to be part of God's family. Again, there is nothing required of us to enter the kingdom of God and to be part of God's family. Even if there was a requirement, Peter makes it very clear in verse 10 that none of us would have been able to fulfil it. 
We are all depraved and we are all in need of God's spirit. We are all broken and sinful people, unable to measure up to our Father in heaven. I think tonight, of all nights, is a a timely opportunity to be reminded of this. We all need the grace and forgiveness of the Lord. And this really is the beauty in the gospel, that we're all in great need of a saviour. And Jesus is that saviour for us, Jews and Gentiles alike. Jonathan Edwards, uh, a fairly well-known 18th century American theologian, I wrote this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. There is nothing required of us for our salvation or for our part in the family of God apart from the fact that we need salvation. We can do nothing to earn God's favour or God's salvation, not even conforming to Jewish law. There's nothing we can do, nor is anything required of us. Sure, we are transformed by the gospel. We respond to the gospel affecting our eternal destiny, affecting our life here and now. And we seek to live a life according to the life and teaching of Jesus, being moulded by the word of God and by the community of the church around us. That's why we're here. That's why we gather around the word. That's why we um, spend time with each other, um, share in life together. But there is still nothing that is required of us in order for us to be saved and transformed by the gospel. And again, I reiterate, this is good news for us. As, as Gentile Christians, uh, there's nothing that we need to do. There's nothing that we need to accomplish. There's nothing that we need to conform to in order to be drawn into the fold of God. So let's move on into verse 36 and following. And this is the second half of our passage tonight. As I said, it's kind of the prospective um, half of the, of the passage, looking ahead um, toward the further mission of the church, and contains a series of separate events in the narrative, but is largely informed uh, by what we've just read and unpacked together. After further teaching in Antioch and the raising up of many other teachers and prophets, Paul now suggests to Barnabas that they visit the churches where they had preached the gospel to see how they are travelling. Paul's intentions here are for a visit of encouragement, but as the case is in Acts throughout the book of Acts, the Spirit had other plans for Paul, other purposes for Paul. Barnabas wanted to include his cousin Mark on their journey, but Paul insisted that they not. Uh, And Mark had, as Mark had left the work of the mission in Pamphylia, and Paul didn't want to include a potentially unreliable companion on their journey for fear of jeopardising the mission ahead. Paul's opinion of Mark does in fact seem to change as he refers to Mark in later letters with appreciation and admiration uh, for the gospel work that he had done. However, Barnabas' opinion uh, in this particular point in the story was much more focused 
on giving Mark an opportunity to redeem himself from the previous occasion and also further opportunity for missional work. So the option was to choose either individual interests or the interests of the task at hand. And this uh, resulted in Paul and Barnabas opting to separate and go their own ways. So Barnabas and Mark went to Cyprus, so the island in the middle uh, there, they sailed there, and that's pretty well the last that we hear of them. And Paul and Silas travelled through Syria and Cilicia, so they were in Antioch on the right-hand side. They've gone um, up through Syria and into Cilicia, onto Derby and then to Lystra and the left uh, there in the orange uh, in Galatia. And verse 33 records Silas as having travelled back to Jerusalem. So it can be assumed then that in the meantime, Silas has returned to Antioch, either by his own volition or in response to Paul's invitation to travel. Nevertheless, they journey together. their journey together is very profitable for the church, uh, where encouragement and strength in the faith are offered. And so into chapter 16, upon arriving in Lystra, Paul uh, came across Timothy, a well-known son of a Greek father and Jewish Christian mother, uh, and her name was Eunice. And in the next breath, we find Paul circumcising Timothy just after the resolution in chapter 15 was shared with the Gentile church in Antioch. This really seems quite contradictory uh, after just hearing of Paul's stance on circumcision uh, for Gentiles. I must admit, I really didn't understand this at first uh, when, I, when I first read the text. Timothy's circumcision is actually a completely separate issue to what has just been discussed and resolved in chapter 15. There's, there is nothing to contradict that fact, that it remains there is nothing required of us um, in entering the family of God, not circumcision, not conformity to the Jewish law. There is nothing. And so we come to this point where Paul has taken Timothy and circumcised him. Timothy was the son of a mixed marriage between a Jew um, and a Gentile, which was not permissible under Jewish law. But if it were to happen, the sons of a mixed marriage were to be circumcised as Jews. As Timothy had not been circumcised, and this was well known um, throughout the land, there were folk amongst the Jewish communities that would have deemed Timothy to be an illegitimate child of his parents' marriage. And so for the purpose of the mission, for the purpose and sake of the Jewish people that they would be in contact with, Paul decided uh, to circumcise him to remove a potential roadblock for their mission ahead. So Timothy's circumcision uh, is not at all a means for his salvation. It's not at all in conformity to Jewish law, but rather as a legal act, removing stigma from Timothy in the eyes of the Jews that they mixed with. It's almost as though Luke has really thrown this brief story into the text to remove any doubts about Paul's theology as history was beginning to be written. I can only imagine that you know, there would have been, if, if this wasn't in the text um, and, and, uh, and Timothy wasn't circumcised, that you know, the scandal that might have arisen in Jewish communities. 
And so as they travelled together, Paul and Timothy shared with the church the decisions that the apostles and elders had come to in Jerusalem regarding the circumcision of Gentiles, regarding this freedom from the Jewish law as Gentile Christians. Despite the letter having been addressed to the church in Antioch, the purpose of the letter and the decisions made in Jerusalem really was to propagate harmony in a Jew-Gentile church, which therefore became relevant in all of the surrounding towns and cities that Paul travelled to, and relevant again for us today. And so again, as they travelled, the church continued to be strengthened in faith and continued to grow in number day by day. I want you to cast your memory back uh, to Acts 2, when the church was just getting off the ground in Jerusalem after the departure of Jesus from this earth and the gift of the Holy Spirit is received at Pentecost. We see in, in Acts 2 a pattern developing that really has informed what we do in church life for the last 2,000 years. In Acts 2.42, we see, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Four things. Devotion to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. How could the church come together to sit at the feet of Jesus if they couldn't even agree on who could be in the church? How could they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching if they couldn't even agree on who could be in the church? How could the church share in a time of fellowship if one half didn't believe that the other should be there because they had lived a different life before knowing Jesus? How could the church come together at the table if one half was serving food that the other couldn't or simply didn't eat? And how could the church pray for and pray with each other if again one half didn't want the other involved unless they behaved and lived the same as them? It's no longer about whether you're Jewish or Gentile in your heritage. It's not really relevant anymore. As I said before, I don't know too many uh, Jews and I certainly don't know too many uh, Jewish Christians. But how can we do any of these things as a church if we don't first seek to have unity with our brothers and sisters in the faith? Just as James gave his directions for the Gentile Christians to live by, for the purpose of unity amongst the church, we too need to take on a perspective that seeks peace and unity today as well. We're so quick as a generation and as a culture to find things that separate each other. The pursuit of individualism has really branded us to look for what sets us apart rather than what could unite us and help us to share in life together, to share uh, in community together. So it's not just a secular issue, but it really is an issue for the church as well. 
This is why we have uh, historically and currently so many divisions in the church. It began with the Jew and Gentile uh, church coming together. And then we had the East and the West sides of the church and then the Catholic and the Protestant sides of the church and so on. And now we're in a place where we have so many denominations across the world. Even our denominations have divisions amongst them. Let me ask you this. How do we as Christians find peace and fellowship amidst a church full of diversity? Sure, there are issues in the church that ought to separate us. There are plenty of issues that have caused separation, though, unnecessarily. So how do we as Christians find peace and fellowship amidst a church full of diversity. This isn't something that we, ought, that we are going to definitively answer tonight, and nor should we. It's a question, though, that we need to regularly ask ourselves. How can I seek peace and fellowship amidst a church full of diversity? Or perhaps this is the question we should be asking of ourselves How can I fellowship peacefully with others in the church who are different to me? You look around in Australia, we really are a diverse people group. We have people from all nations that have come to live here. People of all ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures that call this place home. And the same goes in the church. We look around, there's so many uh, diverse people groups here. So how can we devote ourselves to the teaching of Jesus, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer with others in the church that are different from us? Perhaps for you this could be uh, having dinner with somebody that you, you perhaps just don't know very well or being prepared to let go of your own preferences, your own proclivities for the sake of fellowship with someone else. Perhaps this means that we don't assert superiority over other churches who might believe slightly different things to us. After all, we're in the race together. We're fighting for the gospel together as one church across the nations, across Australia, across Adelaide. And certainly, again, as highlighted tonight, we're not a perfect church. So we certainly can't assert this superiority over other churches. We need to find ways and opportunities uh, to pursue unity in a church full of diversity. Perhaps this means for us that we're to reconcile with others in the church who we've fallen out with. Churches aren't places uh, free from... uh, free from hurt, free from broken relationships. And perhaps our pursuit of unity is to reconcile with others that we've fallen out with. Whatever your answer may be to this question, I really want to encourage you tonight to be thinking about how you can 
Do just that. Fellowship with others in the church, different from yourself. And so these two things that we see in this text. Firstly, that there is nothing required of us to enter the kingdom of God. And secondly, the diversity of the church around us and the need for unity uh, and fellowship together. I hope that the first will really inform the second that you know, we're all in it together. We're all um, bearing arms together in a need for salvation, in a need for Jesus. And that that will spur us on uh, to, to find unity in a diverse church here in Adelaide. There is one separation or one distinction that is important to remember. That Jesus, the Son of God, our Saviour, died in our place to save us when we couldn't save ourselves. This truth really does level us all out. It brings us all down um, a few rungs on the ladder. It puts us all in the same boat together. And this is why we come around the Lord's table every week together. Because despite our sinful attempts at drawing separations or points of distinction within the church, we all need to be reminded of our common need for a saviour and the work that Jesus did in saving us and calling us all his own. Tonight, in a few moments, as we come around the table, I want you to look around at each other. Look at the person in front of you. Look at the person behind you, the person who might be sitting next to you as you go to the table. Be reminded that Jesus died for me just as much as he died for you and for you and for you, for each of the people that we see as we come around the table. Together with churches across the world, we are united in Jesus' death. We're united in his resurrection and in, his, and in the eternal life together that we have with our Father in heaven. And one way that we, uh, we do find unity across our diversity is through sharing this meal together. And tonight, if you're not yet united with Jesus and don't yet know of his great love for you, this is what I want you to consider during this time. Exactly that, that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to save you from your sin and from its power in your life. If this is you, I'd ask that in this time you remain in your seat and consider this great truth. If this is something you want to know more about, please come and have a chat with myself or with anyone that you've seen up the front tonight. We would love to pray with you and share the good news of Jesus with you. So before we come around the table, I'm going to pray. But I, again, just ask that tonight we can be reminded of our great need for a saviour, a need that we all share in, and that that great need is what unites us and, and brings us together despite the diversity that we find, both in the church and in the world around us. Will you pray with me? Father, thanks so much for... Uh, the gift of Jesus, the gift of your son uh, who died in our place a death that uh, we deserve, Lord, for the, the sins that we've committed. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for the opportunity that we have 
to have new life, Lord, because of Jesus. We ask that tonight, uh, as we come around the table, that you remind us, Lord, of um, that incredible work that you've done for us, that new life that we have afresh. Father, we're all created different. We're all created unique. You've created us individually, but Lord, you've brought us together through Jesus. And I ask that this week as we uh, contemplate your word, as we consider uh, our great need for a saviour, that you really inspire us and spur us on to seek unity rather than separation. We're so drawn to distinguish ourselves from those around us, when in reality we're all in the same boat. We all need a saviour. And Jesus died for all of us. And so, Father, as we come around the table, as we remember um, Jesus, as we remember the work that, the saving work that he did for us on the cross, um, yeah, remind us of, of your great love for us and of uh, the need to pursue unity in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.